You're going to take a baseball bat to a horseman, finish the job, because there's one rule of gang fighting. See, we are the original gang, and we're the most vicious in all of professional wrestling history. They send one of yours to the hospital, you send one of theirs to the morgue. Are you something, Ric Flair? That is business, brother. And that was my best friend. If I'll do that to my best friend, what am I going to do to you in Denver, Colorado? The NWO rules, brother. Hello, my name is Bob Bamber and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast going back in the time machine to August of 1996 for Volume 2, Part 1 of this month's show. Uh, volume 1 is your WWF action looking at SummerSlam. Volume 3 is ECW. Now, WCW are taking it upon themselves to have a clash and a pay-per-view this month. Uh, and so I thought that trying to get this in under, say, three and a half, four hours might be a bit of a squeeze. So we have divided this show in two. So how it's going to work, your news now like normal. Uh, Stuart Brooks will then be joining us. We're going to review uh, Hogwild as uh, a pay-per-view review. We're then going to stop and then you're going to download Volume 2 Part 2. Uh, and that will be a review, basically just a run-on. So there won't be any news to be in that second. Uh, that will be a review of the Clash of the Champions and our usual discussion points. Joining me for the entirety of both shows, Jeff Parker. Jeff, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, and uh, we're keeping off the news with me, actually. Uh, Hulk Hogan is the new WCW World Heavyweight Champion, defeating the Giant in the main event of Hogwild. After a match that contained almost no action, the Outsiders interfered before Hogan struck Giant with the title belt. First match angle saw the booty man come out with a birthday cake for Hogan, but as Hogan said, this is about business, not pleasure. And they proceeded to beat up Butcher. Hogwild was otherwise only really memorable for the setting, uh, taking place in front of around 5,000 people, all unpaid, mostly bikers, who knew little, uh, very little about the current uh, product. Uh, combined with a two-hour live edition of Saturday Night that aired immediately prior, it made for a five-hour-long show for a total of 16 matches. In the culminating event of the evening, the Outsiders defeated Lex Luger and Sting, thanks to quite a convoluted finish involving referee Nick Patrick, whose slow heel turn has started this month. Elsewhere on the card, there were wins for Rey Mysterio Jr., Scott Flash Norton, Medusa, Chris Benoit, Harlem Heat, and Nature Boy Ric Flair. The entire week, Saturday to Thursday, featured nine hours of live television from Saturday with Saturday night and the pay-per-view through the Nitro on the Monday and a live Clash of the Champions event on the Thursday from Denver, Colorado. The main event saw the now Hollywood Hulk Hogan against Ric Flair, which was the same main event of the Clash two years ago that drew the record 6.7 TV rating. Uh, the 3.5 rating of this show, the 6.7 from two years ago, was just a match, uh, was even down from January's clash. Much like their match in 1994, Hogan retained, but again, there were questions as to whether Hogan submitted in the figure four. To no be surprised, this match ended by DQ after interference from the Outsiders. The show also featured a 20-second squash for Chris Benoit by the Giant and another chapter in the story of Nick Patrick's heel turn. 
Ted DiBiase debuted on Nitro this week in an angle that will soon see him formally become the fourth member of the NWO. He came down and sat front row and counted to four, perhaps with the idea trying to fool some that he was with the four horsemen. But then he mouthed next week before counting to five. The fifth member should be Sean Waltman, a.k.a. the 123 Kid, but WCW are still awaiting the WWF to grant him his release. Waltman will run out the four in the NWO headlining war games at, at, at WCW Fall Brawl against the team of Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Sting, and Lex Luger. Amongst other signings this month was Chris Jericho, who debuted on Nitro against Alex Wright, and the Quebecers, who have signed a contract but have yet to debut. Also, Glacier finally made his debut at the syndicated tapings. And on to the ratings for the month, starting in July, actually, on the 29th, as Nitro beat Raw 3.1 to 2.1. August was a clean sweep for, clean sweep for Nitro 2, although the numbers for both sides did keep rising. On August the 5th, Nitro did a 3.0 towards 2.8. Coming off of Hogwarts the week later, Nitro did a 3.3 towards 2.0. Coming off of SummerSlam the following week, Nitro did a 3.5 to 2.9. And on the 26th of August, Raw was preempted, as it will be at the beginning of September, in its absence Nitro did a 4.2. Intense pain is a wonderful thing, Gene Okerlund. Your life flashes before your eyes. Things that are the most important to you become crystal clear. Look at this. You start to begin to learn the meaning of life. Last week when they stuffed me in that ambulance... And I looked across and I saw Flair, Sting, Woman, Bagwell, and myself. I realized that we were people brought together, not by philosophy, but by necessity. And I started to think, New World Order, New World Order, where have I heard that? And I remembered in the good book it says, when the New World Order is put into place, it signals the beginning of the end of time. Well, WCW is our world. It's where we live and breathe. And if you want to destroy it, Hogan and the Outsiders, you've already made a mistake that jumps off the page. You're going to take a baseball bat to a horseman, finish the job, because there's one rule of gang fighting. See, we are the original gang, and we're the most vicious in all of professional wrestling history. They send one of yours to the hospital. You send one of theirs to the morgue. We open with Giovanni and Zabisco talking about last week's NWO attack. The wrestlers are now going to be handling their own security, including Big Bubba, Meng, the Barbarian, and Scott Norton at ringside. Again, there are empty chairs at ringside, not three, but four. The opening contest sees the Rock and Roll Express challenging Harlem Heat for the tag titles. An understandably slow match ends with Sherry breaking up the Express pin before holding down Booker to see the champs retain. Yes, Ricky and Robert still have outstanding mullets. Mean Gene interviews the Nasties on the stage as Luger and Sting question their alliance and we get yet another Glacier vignette. Malia Hasaka gets a cheat win over Medusa when Sonny Ono holds down Medusa's ankles. Yes, exactly the same finish as the last match. A black stretched limo turns up ringside and next up is Chris Benoit against Alex Wright. The Wonder Kid wins by countout when Malenko attacks Benoit on the outside. The commentary team continues to question the limo. 
Lord Stephen Regal and Macho Man have a quick match. Savage ends up winning with an elbow. Sting and Luger open the limo to find a bouquet of flowers, or a wreath as it's known, Tony. The message, condolences on the death of WCW. Gene interviews Savage and Sting and Luger in the ring. They say WCW is alive and well. They put out the bouquet. Hour 2 opens up with no Heenan or Bischoff. Flair and Booty Man have a brief contest. The Horsemen bring it into an early close. Double A cuts a stellar promo on the NWO, calling the Horsemen the originators of gang warfare. Flair says they wanted their attention. Now they have it. After a replay of last week's Backlot Beatdown, we cut to a paid-for announcement from the NWO. They rip on Luger, Sting and Giant. We then hear from the truck, who cut off the video at the request of Sting and Luger. The Giant gets a squash win over Craig Pittman, then chokeslams Teddy Long to the delight of Jimmy Hart. The limousine returns, a Giant cuts a very decent promo on Hogan. Hogan. Then a Glacier video, for change. Nasty Boys take on Luger and Sting in the main event. Sting picks up the win over Sags with a Scorpion Deathlock. We end the show with a cut to the limo where Sting and Luger open up the back door and have a turn-up bag thrown at them. Inside, a message reads, Ray was right. There are four guys. Or is it five? See you in Sturgis. If Hogan were fortunate enough tonight to beat the Giant, which I don't think he can do, and to take our world championship over to the New World Order, I'll be upset. But you know what? In Hogan's mind, his ego being what it is, he'll still see one sign out there that says, Ric Flair rules. WCW, Ric Flair forever. That'll drive him crazy. So you know what he'll do? He'll make the mistake, if he wins that title, of asking everybody around him, he'll say, God, is there anything else out there that we need to do? And somebody will say, yeah, Flair. You've got to be Flair. Because if you really want to be hit, Hogan, if you really want to be hit, you're going to have to be Rick Flair. I try to make people mad at me. I try to. For 20 years, I've done a real good job, but I've made millions making people mad. But I've never crossed that line of being ridiculous enough in my own character to think that I could start a new promotion and really go so far as to think that I could eliminate people and eliminate a history and a tradition so rich. We're talking about a company that's been in existence really for almost a hundred years. A company that I represented on 13 different occasions as the real deal, the real live world heavyweight champion. This company is the best. I'll stand up for it. I'll fight for it. Those guys have no idea what that means. Hogan had no idea. When Hogan was selling toys, he's the greatest flagship for selling toys, for being a vehicle to carry promotion that's ever come along in our business. But when you talk about walking down that aisle and getting in that ring and performing night after night for thousands of people because you believe in what you're doing, you believe in your product, you take a check home to your wife, you say, baby, I'm covered in stitches, I'm, I, I'm hurting all over, but this is because I'm the best at what I do. They have no idea. Hogan, Nash, Hall, whoever, you hurt my best friend. Didn't matter whether I'm standing with Sting and Luger, 
through association. They could be in an ambulance with me. They could be in my home. If Arn Anderson's down, I'm there. I mean, Arn Anderson and I have been up and down this road for 15 years now. We have bled, we have sweat, and we've cried. The emotion in this business is huge. It's hard. It's hard on you personally. I had decided in my own mind that Hogan and the New World Order and the Horsemen could coexist. But then they jumped on our knees. And it became a whole new awareness, a whole new ballgame. This is our business. We stand top by getting involved. The other real friend in life is, is, is this company. This company is the best. I'll stand up for it. I'll fight for it. It's on now. It's on the table. It's us. It's survival of the fittest. It doesn't matter whether I like Sting or Sting likes me or Luger. It's one company now trying to be taken over by another. If the New World Order wants to make their mark and to really score, you've got your opportunity now because the horsemen are involved. Two of us can't divide. Two companies can't divide. Go to bed with that thought tonight. And we jump straight into our analysis of WCW Hogwild and uh, the Saturday night, well, the brief analysis of Saturday night. Join myself and Jeff from the New Generation Project podcast is Stuart Brooks. Stuart, hello. Good evening, Bob. Um, Stuart, kick us off with the long, long list of matches that, that aired or both on television and on pay-per-view that evening. Okay, beginning with the Saturday night matches, we have the Public Enemy defeating Dick Slater and Mike Enos. Next up, Conan defeated Chavo Guerrero Jr. The Nasty Boys defeated High Voltage. Alex Wright beat Bobby Eaton. The Dungeon of Doom of the Taskmaster Meng and the Barbarian defeated Joe Gomez, Jim Powers and Mark Starr. Squire David Taylor defeated Mr. J.L. Diamond Dallas Page defeated the Renegade. And in the Saturday night main event, Arn Anderson defeated Hugh Morris. On to Hogwild. Rey Mysterio Jr. defeated the Ultimate Dragon in a singles match for the WCW Cruiserweight title. Scott Norton defeated Ice Train. Medusa defeated Bull Nakano in a Battle of the Bikes match. Chris Benoit defeated Dean Malenko. Harlem Heat defeated the Steiner Brothers in a match for the WCWL Tag Team titles. Ric Flair beat Eddie Guerrero in a singles match for the WCW United States title. The Outsiders defeated Sting and Lex Luger. And in the main event, Hulk Hogan defeated the Giant to capture the WCW World Heavyweight title. I think front to back, that was just shy of five hours, if you'd have watched that all in a block. Um, we will briefly, I know Jess seen Saturday night, I know Stuart hasn't, we'll briefly do a quick bit of analysis on that. For what it's worth, probably one of the only things I think Jeff's going to mention is the Ric Flair promo. Um, you know, we, you will have heard it before this, this review started a couple of minutes ago, so that's what that was. Uh, an abbreviated version of that does air on the pay-per-view itself, but there's a longer version that airs on Saturday night. Um, Jeff, you've seen Saturday night, and any takeaway from it? Um, really just in front of this crowd that really didn't care about wrestling, I just was kind of puzzled that they had both Public Enemy and, and the Nasties on the, on the prelim, or the, the Saturday night show, because I think they're kind of more brawling style, especially how the Nasties have done those tag matches over the last couple of years. It kind of felt like that's the type of thing that might pop a crowd that's not necessarily a, a, a legitimate pro wrestling crowd. Um, and the, the Flair promo, again, Flair is just firing all, on all cylinders, and when you look at 
the rest of the WCW roster. He is just even at his advanced age, he's just he's just a, uh, still an ace. Yeah, I think the the flair thing is is interesting in the sense that although he's been you know quite a overt heel in this last year or so, you might say his last two and a bit actually, I suppose, um, and he's been like a really big heel in a few with Randy Savage. I just don't think that in in 1996, you're helping anyone out if you're trying to make Ric Flair a heel. Um, and so I think it just, you know, the NWO thing's kind of fallen into your lap. And while, you know, there are some stories that don't really make sense, just go with it. Um, and Jeff, I think one thing that I looked at that kind of made sense to me was Flair as a baby face, or a sort of baby face in that interview, didn't really feel any different to Flair the heel. It didn't feel like much of a transition in terms of how he was speaking or necessarily kind of the, what he was talking about. But yeah, it all seemed to make a lot of sense. Yeah, that was, I thought the main thing that really uh, was illuminated to me with that promo was he said, like, you know, I've had issues with, with Luger, I've had issues with Sting, but this is bigger than that. And, uh, I think going forward with, I think this was my insta thought was like, they've always tried to find the perfect recipe to put Hogan versus Flair, and maybe it, the, the actual alchemy of it is Hogan has to be the heel. Um, and Flair the babyface, or at least as much of a babyface as Flair is gonna get. And especially when you look at those, you know, old NWA territories that the WCW runs, Flair is going to get more cheers. Um, so I think they might, I think they might actually have a really cool uh, angle going with Flair as again, like again, like the the uh, the the they call Sting the franchise, but to call Flair the you know the the elder statesman of WCW to go up against this you know brand of interlopers. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's always been that undercurrent ever since Hogan arrived that as much as you can present Hogan as a babyface and Flair as a heel, there's sort of big chunk of chunk of WCW's audience that are gonna. Boo Hogan and they're going to cheer Flair. Although oddly enough, on this night there was actually a big chunk of the WCW audience in attendance, or should I say, the audience in attendance, um, that were actually going to cheer Hulk Hogan. But we'll come to that later in the show, and obviously we will come to what happened at the Clash later on uh, in this month as well between Flair and Hogan as well. Um, Stuart, moving on to the perfume itself, what were your your thoughts on it? Kind of a middling show, really. I think there was some pretty good stuff on there, certainly on the undercard, but I just was not a fan of the environment right from the get-go. It kind of had a similar feel to that Bash at the Beach show from last year, where it wasn't necessarily an audience that was into the product. They recognised a few of the stars, but you could tell they didn't follow WCW storylines on an ongoing basis, and, you know... There was one match in particular, which we'll get to later, where it certainly detracted from the match. There was one particular act that they disliked for very obvious reasons that made me feel a bit uncomfortable. Jeff? Yeah, I I completely agree. I think on paper, if you take this card into, say, Baltimore or the Carolinas or someplace where WCW actually has a hot crowd, this is probably going to be a a more respectively received show and I think a lot of the issue as as pointed out is you know that that crowd there was not really the wrestling crowd they were revving their motors it, it also from a production standpoint just looked so 
low rent, I just kept saying to myself, like, Vince McMahon would never do this. There's no money to be made here. This is a very self-aggrandizing promotion right here. Um, and, like, I liked the I liked the undercard. I thought it was great. Um, but I think, I think if anything from this show I, I took anything from, it was that a crowd can help make a match even better. And two guys out there doing their best sometimes might not be enough if the crowd is not invested at all. Yeah, in a funny kind of way, as much as I would completely agree that the setting and the audience changed how this show would have been perceived and it perhaps made some things bad that otherwise would have been good, it also perhaps made some things better that might otherwise not have been. I feel that the show was different because it was outside in Sturgis, but I don't necessarily feel that it would have been any better or any worse inside um, in, in a more traditional setting. I mean, there, I, I think, Jeff, I think you're completely right. There was there were some things about it that just looked incredibly hokey. I mean, basically just to... For those that haven't seen it, they had the ring, and then they had basically the ring on top of a platform. And so there was your ringside area at normal height for about, I don't know, six or seven feet. And then this platform dropped probably about another eight or uh, six, seven, eight feet probably further down as well. So you basically had the ring on top of, if you like, kind of a bigger ring, obviously without any ropes or, or mat. Um, and everything was there, which made the ring probably a bit higher than people would have used to, which might create quite an odd view for people in attendance if you were sat down on a bike or a chair or whatever. Actually, and you were near the front, I actually don't know how much of the ring you would be able to see, because it's quite high up. Um, but yeah, it looked incredibly rough around the edges. It created for some very bizarre um, moments. But sure, I think one of the things I, I say when I say it may change it so rather than maybe affected it positively or negatively was that I really liked how the sun set on the show. We went from bright daytime to the final two or three matches in darkness. I thought of the positives of the stuff surrounding the show, that was one of them. Yeah, I mean, I think there were some interesting visuals created because of it, and certainly kind of having the hills in the background created, yeah, an, an interesting visual, but yeah, I, I, ju- I just think the negatives outweigh the positives, and that might be mostly down to the people in attendance. I mean, and then you've got that kind of WCWism that, they, again, they did at Bash at the Beach last year where they're trying to convince you there's 100,000 people there. The figure ranged from anywhere from we had 250,000, we had 300,000, and, you know, Bobby Heenan's trying to sell that everybody is transfixed by the ring, yet in the background you can just see people wandering around like, I haven't yeah. actually seen attendance estimates yet. What do you reckon, Stuart? Four or five thousand? Would that be fair? Paying attention to what was going on, I'd probably go for about that. Yeah, that's it. Jeff, any anything further on that? I don't know. I haven't read anything yeah. formally yet. I mean, the 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 one thing I would note, I think that the the visual was awesome. I mean, when you do get that sunset, there's been that uh, it's been like that for a couple of WrestleManias, uh, the, the SummerSlam at Wembley, obviously. Uh, but the one thing that I I would just contrast that with is. Um, as nice as the aesthetic is, um, uh, for me, I've always heard pro wrestlers say how much they hated open air stadiums uh, because the they can't hear the crowd, they can't can't read the crowd. There's not as much reverberation of the noise, so it's a, ha- a lot harder for the workers to kind of get their match and sync and to kind of uh, go with the flow. And maybe that didn't even matter here because the fans weren't going to pop as regular wrestling fans would have, but. Uh, Ultimately, I think, you know, when you do not charge free admission, much like the Bash at the Beach uh, the year prior, 
uh, it just seems counterintuitive to a successful wrestling promotion, regardless, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you're right when you say it was self-indulgent in the sense that I don't think they were charging for this. Um, this, if you think about it, as much as they would have booked this kind of thing far enough in advance where you, know, you couldn't have predicted it, but the first show after the first show after the big angle probably would have done quite a sizable gate if you'd have booked the right venue in the right place and quite a sizable paying gate. And I think as much as I say it didn't change it, what it perhaps impacted on negatively, one, as, as you two both quite rightly pointed out, was that this audience was not particularly a WCW heavy audience, and that impacted on some of the matches. But also, this wasn't an audience that was reacting in a way that befitted some of the stories that were going on. Um, and I think the main event's probably a, a, as big a signpost as that as any, but I think we're... Um, I think we'll probably start the show. We've been nattering on about it for long enough. Uh, we start with some very nice scenic shots of Sturgis in South Dakota. Lots of shots of the rally and a lot of bikers. What do they look like as we cut to the announced team? Dusty Rose donning a flat cap, sleeveless denim shirt and cut off denim shorts. Shivoni doesn't look much better either. Uh, we open up with Ultimate Dragon versus Rey Mysterio Jr. for the WCW Cruiserweight Championship. The first five minutes of this pay-per-view aired live on television, so only just before the match started did we exclusively move to pay-per-view, and Mike Tenay joins us on commentary. We start with a working of arms, Dragon works as a submission, Mysterio and arm drag. Mysterio seems to be dressed as Spider-Man, which looks really good. The crowd start a USA chant. Mysterio is born in California, but I'm not sure I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt on that one. Uh, Dragon hits a spin wheel kick. We do some leg sweeps and a double kip up. Dragon hits a handspring back elbow and then a running sit-out powerbomb. Dragon puts Mysterio on his shoulders into a torch rack and then just drops down to his knees. Dragon puts Mysterio into a surfboard, but Mysterio counters into a pair of covers for a two. Mysterio then baseball slides Dragon out onto the outside or off of the platform that the ring is sat on, so he's kind of two levels down. Mysterio then hits a slingshot body, a crossbody over the platform to Dragon on the ground, probably about an eight to ten feet drop, uh, even from the height of the mat, so from the height of the ropes, probably nearer fifteen. Uh, Dragon hits a lovely bridging suplex for a two, then a springboard moonsault before signaling for the end. A big moonsault only gets a two. Mysterio hits Frankenstein off the top and wins the match. Jeff. Um, I thought it was a really good show opener. Um, both guys are obviously excellent workers. Um, they told a really decent story. Um, one of my problems with some of the cruiserweight and lighter guy uh, matches is that sometimes you just get two nameless faces who just n- nobody works the overt or, or just direct heel. So I liked seeing Dragon and Sanyono out there at least trying to kind of, even if Ultimo, Ultimate uh, Dragon doesn't, you know, do the, you know, Ric Flair type of, of, of heel work. He is uh, a little more aggressive in going after his, his stuff than a lot of the guys were in the cruiserweight division, so I, I like that. Um, my main note to this match was that Tony Schiavone, uh, Tony Schiavone, uh, it's not Tony Schiavone, Mike Tenay is really, really good at commentary for these types of matches, and he adds so much, uh, so many layers, so much information, and none of the other commentators do any of these guys favors because they're just talking over each other and just if anything, being a detriment to the match, and Tanay adds so much. You kind of uh, just think, why not just put Tanay on the entire show? Well, I, actually, I heard Terry Funk once say that as much as he loves Mike Tanay, that sometimes, as much as you want to hear about the triple acrobata Arabia Asai moonsault, uh, there is a component to just a simple storytelling 
tactic and that sometimes Tanay doesn't necessarily put that across as good as, say, uh, even Shivani at his top, at his best game, or, or Jim Ross. Um, so that would always, that's what I've heard has been this kind of the knock to him. But no, I think he's, I think he's passionate and it shows and he educates the crowd. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I would, I would, I would have him on it, but I, I kind of see where the knock on him is, is that there's kind of a, a poindextery, uh, you know, encyclopedia as a negative type of, of vibe with him. Um, but he, he kind of, he's introducing the, the fans who are not familiar with, say, you know, Japanese style or Lucha Libre style, and he's so articulate that he gets it over. Um, I thought the crowd was dead. I thought the acoustics were terrible for it. They only really popped for that huge springboard to the dirt, which did not seem safe. Um, if I was like, if I was one of those guys and they told me to take that bump, I would have like flipped out. Like just think of the, the potential for like not even taking a bump onto, you know, concrete, but uh, like a rough surface. It just seemed completely impractical. Um, Honking bike horns did not seem conducive to a good wrestling show, but overall, I really liked the match. It was fun. Yeah, I think the the complexity of the bump was perhaps exemplified by the fact that it's not just that Mysterio's got to drop down; he's kind of got to drop forward as well. He's got to beat that ledge and then, you know, kind of time his jump essentially. But yeah. Um, I think it's also, and this is going to be a, a theme in one of the matches coming up in a bit, there's also my thought that in front of this crowd, like, it's not the kind of crowd that's even going to appreciate that kind of bump even if you pull it off, and they did, but it's not, you know, like, do do that kind of bump in, front, in a match that matters in front of a crowd that are going to be able to appreciate it, and this didn't have either of those things going for it. Stuart? Yeah, I, I'd agree with that, and I think almost... It, you'd have been better off putting this match. I think w- the Great American Bash that was in Maryland, if I'm if I'm right. That sounds about right. Yeah. Jeff, does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, so that first sort of big debut match for Mysterio, which you know perhaps wasn't a showcase of his aerial skills. I mean, it was a good match. It was it was him and Malenko, but you almost think maybe if you'd have put him and Dragon there in in that setting in front of that crowd, they'd have been a whole lot more appreciative. I mean. The match itself, I really enjoyed it. The dive to the outside was incredible, although, like you say, somewhat unappreciated by the audience. Dragon is phenomenal. Mysterio is phenomenal. Yeah, it might have just been better placed in front of a a, a more appreciative audience. I guess the USA chants were for Mysterio if he was born in California, but I don't necessarily think the audience would have known that. No, maybe they thought they were both Mexican and they were just chanting USA. Hell, there's a match later in the show that suggests that may very well be the case, but we'll come to that in a bit. Um, yeah, the match was fine. I don't think it was exceptional, and I think there are, I think there's enough to say that this match in another setting in another arena at another time in front of a different audience would have been more well received. Um, both guys struggled because of the whole platform thing in the, there was enough apron to land on, but not really enough where you could do anything to because it was too much danger of falling off. Um, and so a lot of the platform action we saw was just people getting thrown over the top or getting kind of brawling around it rather than any guys kind of you know, flying off of the top turn back or, or off of the apron to the platform. So that suffered a bit. The match was fine. I think there's a, 
there's another issue here in that Ultimate Dragon isn't a guy that a lot of uh, you know, an American audience has heard of. Rey Mysterio is a guy that's been around a while, but he's still just a name, really. He's just Rey Mysterio. He flies a bit. He's a bit like Dean Malenko. We don't really know a lot about him. We know bits, but you know he's the guy that got beaten up by the NWO. Um, but yeah, the, the match was good. It was a nice opener. Um, but yeah, I'd agree. I think in a, in another setting, this may have may have fared a bit better. Uh, we cut to Minji in Oakland, who also looks ridiculous. Um, he does a, a plug, I think, for his hotline. Uh, we were next to Scott Norton versus Ice Train. Two proper units here. They start with a series of strikes. Norton goes to work on Train's arm, who's already heavily bandaged. Train rally with some chops. Train hits a power slam for a near fall, working off of one arm. Norton gets him down, put an arm lock on the bad arm, and the ref calls it. The match is over. Stuart. I quite liked these two as a tag team, and I think I've now found out why. It's because I didn't want to watch them wrestle singles matches against each other. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anything more? It, it, it was just not a good match. I I do like Norton, but yeah, I, I just think maybe these two as a tag team hid both people's weaknesses. It's also something to be said that these two are probably both guys that might wrestle better matches, just not against each other. Yes, potentially. But, you know, sometimes it can be fun watching two, like you say, big units going against each other, but this just wasn't thrilling in any way. Yeah, I've seen better matches than Norton. I don't know about Ice Train on his own. Uh, Jeff? Yeah, this felt like a glorified uh, job match for Ice Train. Uh, Norton was showcased here. I like that he laid his stuff in. It wasn't necessarily a Haas fight. The finish seemed bland. Um, I really didn't... I, I, I like Norton. Uh, I think you need to put him in there with somebody with really good working boots, and I don't think Ice Train will ever be accused of that. Um, very minimal impact on my day-to-day life was this match. No, I'd agree. I think my only real takeaway beyond as someone who quite likes this match is appreciating small bits of it was that it was just nice. We don't see it that often. You'll see a wrestler going into a match carrying an injury and you'll never really see the injury play a part in the finish. It was just quite nice. Scott Norton versus Ice Train. Ice Train's got a bad arm. Norton works the arm, puts an arm lock in and it's over. That doesn't happen enough. I did at least take that away anyway. That's that for what that's worth. Uh, we get a sit-down interview with Ric Flair. Yeah, this was the interview that you heard earlier that aired in full on Saturday night. He says his other best friend is WCW, and he'd do anything for it. He finishes by saying that both companies cannot exist, referring, of course, to WCW and the NWO. We will next to Bull Nakana versus Medusa. Stuart, um, were you... Uh, I asked you this earlier, but I didn't actually ask you in the pre- prelim. Uh, were you going to take us through this match? I can do, yep. Excellent, let's do that. Paul Nakano is out first. Well, actually, it's Sunny Ono. For some reason, he rides a motorbike and she doesn't. Bobby Heenan says she's the only woman who could wear Abe Lincoln's hat. Medusa comes out on a Harley Davidson wearing an American bikini, and surprisingly enough, she gets a big pop for that. While the referee deals with Sunny, Bull uses her nunchucks to attack Medusa. The referee actually manages to see this, but doesn't do anything about it. Bull chucks Medusa across the ring by her hair violently. USA chants for the crowd, which do make sense in this one. Bull hits Medusa with a vicious lariat and hits a suplex for a two, but Medusa bridges out and gets a big pop for her comeback. Bobby Heenan starts mocking Vince McMahon on commentary with cries of, she got her at every pinfall attempt. Bull applies the Scorpion crosslock but doesn't get a tap out. Bull then hits a draping DDT from the top rope for a two. Bobby Heenan then claims that a 200-pound woman is like a 400-pound man, and we get Harley chants from the crowd, but the former NWA champion is nowhere near ringside. 
Medusa hits a Hurricane Rana for a two and gets a big pop. Medusa hits a big spin kick but misses a second and Bull wallops her with another big clothesline for a two. Medusa hits an impressive German suplex for a two but Bull reverses a second attempt for a two count of her own. Medusa gets a sunset flip for a two before Bull gets a belly to back suplex for a three count that's quite clearly a two count. Sonny Ono grabs a nearby sledgehammer anyway and wails away on the Harley Davidson until Medusa steals it and begins bashing the Honda to a big pop as Bull Nakano watches and the announcers still aren't actually sure if the match has finished. Thank you for that, Stuart. The original plan of this show is to call for Stuart to present the whole thing, uh, but I thought we, you know, as we ended up flipping that over, I thought I'll put Stuart in the Mike's Nay spot for his speciality matches. We'll, we'll talk a bit about Japanese women's wrestling in a little bit. Uh, Jeff, thoughts on this match? Um, I'll go with the positives first. I thought I really appreciated that there was a clear baby face and a clear defined heel. And I like the dynamic and the story that the two of them worked and obviously they worked together before. Um, I actually would have liked to see them have a few more minutes to work and kind of build the match because I thought, uh, Medusa making a baby face comeback, you know, it felt a bit clumsy at the end, but I think with a little more time, it could have had a little more room to breathe. Uh, other than that, I thought the finish was, was pretty rough around the edges. Again, as mentioned, uh, the nunchucks were like, it w- if you visibly see nunchucks, and obviously when you have some sort of, you know, ref uh, involvement in the shenanigans, you might have a, an accident like that, but it seemed kind of, it seems kind of poor. Uh, I felt the stipulation storyline felt necess- unnecessary with the bikes. I, I mean, I get you're there, but uh, I don't know. I, I just overall, and on another note, I thought Heaton was quite brutal with uh, his calling of false finishes that really kills the pace of the match for the audience or the viewer because every time he says, oh, she's got him, oh, she's got him, it does kind of detract from the value of a false finish, um, which I didn't care for. But oh, overall, it uh, it was halfway decent. Yeah, I think the heat and stuff's going to become a lot more prevalent in the next match. Sure. Yeah, I mean, this was these two kind of running through almost a, a sort of five-minute abridged greatest hits version of their better matches. Like Jeff said, they've worked extensively against one another kind of all through 94 and all through 95 for the WWF. But yeah, this was kind of a truncated version of that. There were some good moments in it, but yeah, the sort of race nature of it and the fluffed finish though not the worst finish on this show sort of really detracted from it yeah um it was quite impressive there was quite impressive sequences but none of it really combined to make any kind of compelling match and i think part of that was just a a quite flimsy storyline a quite basic storyline as well um but yeah you combine the fact that i mean that that match with your suit was isn't actually much shorter than my review of the malenko benoit one which is about five times as long um that in part just says a few notes i took for that match but a lot happened in this match but you got to the end of it it it's only five minutes like oh particularly when it was just the kind of that quite disappointing finish and then we get the the post-match stuff and i kind of thought it fell flat on the basis that the idea was was that whoever won the match got to destroy their opponent's bike which kind of made sense it was a fairly fairly obvious gimmick you've got a japanese wrestler and an american wrestler well the american wrestler come out on an american bike japanese wrestler come out on the japanese bike the winner gets to destroy the other person's bike kind of makes sense but then we get to the thing and, and ono grabs the sledgehammer and takes two incredibly soft shots at the bike and then alundra blaze grabs the sledgehammer and goes over to the honda and bashes away it for a good minute and barely does any damage um sure i i thought that you know if this segment was gonna have any redeeming features it would have been someone beating the fuck out of a bike and she didn't do it yeah I, uh, 
yeah, that's presumably what they wanted, but probably didn't realise that it takes more than kind of a few errant sledgehammer shots from someone who's just wrestled a, a kind of five-minute wrestling match to destroy, you know, a, a motorbike. They're presumably designed to take hardier bumps, if you like, than than, than that. And and to paraphrase Bobby Heenan, a 200-pound woman is not like a 400-pound man when it comes to destroying a bike with a sledgehammer. I probably would have backed Scott Norton in this case. Probably. Yeah, or Vader, perhaps. Yeah, well, Vader could have just sat on it, I suppose. But there's there's uh, there's always that. But yeah, as you, uh, we, I ask you this every time we're on, we do a, a women's match. Uh, in between the last time I asked you, which would have been about a year ago when we did the Collision Career Show, any Japanese women's wrestling, re- wrestling, Japanese women's wrestling matches that jump out in the, in the time that we've been away since. Not in kind of the, that period. I mean, I mean, things have started to slow down for all Japan women. You know, as kind of the major promotion, I think they're heading sort of, quite frankly, out of business. But there's still plenty of stuff from that kind of '94, '95 era that, that's worth checking out. That I think recommended last time. Okay, uh, yeah, that would be the uh, August 95 Volume 4 Collision and Career Show. Sure, join me and Chris to review uh, all of that. We will move on next. We join the Steiners on CompuServe. Uh, they're on the Aussie America online chat. It does seem like Rick Steiner is playing a racing game, or at least he is judging by the noises he's making. And we move on next to Dean Malenko versus Chris Benoit with Miss Elizabeth and Woman. Benoit puts Malenko onto his back and the pair start brawling. Heenan suggests the crowd is 250,000 people in size. Benoit is in control of the match thus far. We get an awkward transition into a series of pin attempts. Benoit barely managing to bridge out of the last one. More counters, more pin attempts, and another bridge from Malenko that also barely makes it. Still an impressive sequence. Malenko goes for an arm triangle. Benoit deadlifts him into a backdrop. Impressive that. Benoit blocks a double axe handle off the top into a snap suplex. He follows that with a big diving headbutt. Benoit shapes for a tombstone pile driver. Malenko counters his ball of his own and has a series of pinfall attempts to no avail. They go to the top. Benoit executes a big superplex and over-rotates and hits the mat at quite the angle. More near falls in a series of suplexes. They're beating the crap out of each other here. They announce that there's five minutes left. Benoit gets Malenko in a brutal looking vertical Boston Crab he ties Malenko up with his legs bridge into a pin attempt but two and we get the three minutes left we get a test of strength with a backslide pin Malenko gets it but only for a two Bobby Heenan this entire match and in the match previously has been doing his best Vincent Mann impression of he's got him whenever there's a two six seconds to go Benoit goes to the top Malenko follows with a big release superplex two count Malenko goes for a powerbomb into a pin. The time runs out, but Benoit kicks out anyway. There's minor boost for that. Benoit and Malenko square off, and we have five minutes overtime. Benoit goes for a bridging belly to back for a two. Then a tilt and world backbreaker for a two. That looked really nice. Benoit locks in Malenko's Texas Cloverleaf. Woman is begging Benoit to get the job done. Benoit gets a leg lock in. He does his best Vince impression again. An inside cradle from Malenko, Benoit kicks out as time runs out. Dave Penza announces another five minute overtime and the crowd groan. I'm kind of actually with them on that occasion. He even says the fans are mad because they think Benoit should be the winner. I, we'll see. Uh, Benoit ducks the clothesline into a German suplex for a two. 
more he got in from Heenan. Malenko tries to drag Woodman over uh, to the corner. Ashley tries to get involved. Benoit rolls Malenko up off the distraction. One, two, three. He got him, says Heenan, and this time he's right as Benoit wins the match. Stuart. Yeah, this was really, really good, bar the sort of slightly extraneous overtime period business. I mean, if you're just going to go to overtime, why why have a time limit at all? What what What's the purpose of the time limit? Again, as with the Mysterio Ultimo Dragon match, this was not a match that this audience was into. They, they were more into women fighting over bikes than they were two guys having, you know, a really good technical wrestling match. And then that's a shame that, you know, these guys went out there and kind of did their thing for 20 minutes and you, you know, you know, these types of matches sometimes that crowds that aren't into technical wrestling see, sometimes, you know, they start out quiet and the crowd get into it. This, this was not one of those examples. And like you say, they groaned at the prospect of overtime, which, yes, was a silly concept, but yeah, overall, a really, really good match. Jeff? Um, I guess I'll preface by saying on a, on a sheer technical level, it was an excellent match. Um, I love Benoit selling. I think he's, I think he's top notch, and I, I really don't. Considering he was working Malenko, who's kind of a tweener, is he a heel? Is I, don't, I mean, his his persona is a little vanilla for me. Um, but I think that Benoit really needs to be brought to the next level. He's a horseman. He's so great, and I think, uh, you know, him him backdooring his way into a win after double overtime kind of felt like a ho hum finish to a really good match. Felt the crowd didn't deserve a match that was this good. I felt like, you know, these guys are putting a clinic on in front of them. They really didn't care, as Stewart kind of alluded, well, didn't allude to, he just said. Um, Again, you get this divested, uh, disinterested commentary, um, especially from Brain and Dusty, and they seem to kind of just make the match an uphill battle. And and I wanted to credit Shivani here because it felt like he was trying to wrangle them in to kind of keep a consistent storytelling narrative for this match. It was a losing cause. Um... You know, I, the the thing that really stood out to me on, on a negative was that, you know, this match and the cruiserweight match before it, while they were so technically, you know, good matches, there was no real, you know, perceivable heat. And I almost, I started to just think, like, this card in front of this audience should have just been a lot more of an uncensored type show where you have things that would pop crowds that aren't necessarily pro wrestling fans with, like, unmitigated violence and you'd have things and that's that's why I, I would think I'd book Duggan I'd have the Nasties I would have Public Enemy I would have just a lot more high spots which is not something I necessarily want to see on every card but with a card like this that's the type of a little more sh- glitz and glamour or sizzle without steak than getting the perfect steak here with, that was just completely substan- substance over style um, and it, it wasn't appreciated yeah, the action in this match was really good, but the story they wrapped around it was pretty horrendous. I mean, like the yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like I, I made reference to my lack of notes in the sense that what you'll generally notice from my notes is that I'll tell you ninety-five percent of the story and about fifty, sixty percent of the moves because there wasn't actually a lot of story. I just kind of focused on the bigger moves, but not a lot actually happened in this match. Even though it went quite a long time. Um, and it was, you know, the slightly arbitrary time limit, which felt a bit weird. Um, and then we go into overtime, and it was like we got to the end of the first round of overtime, there still wasn't a winner. And then out the second one, the crowd kind of went, ugh. And I kind of did too, which is really weird. But I, I like, 
I could admire this match for what it was, but I don't necessarily think it was all that good. It was kind of like an exhibition match. It was kind of like the Harlem Globetrotters in like, you know, like I can, I can admire what they're doing, but I'm not remotely invested. And I think there's blame that can be shared in a lot of quarters. I would agree, as, as we probably would say for most of the matches on this card, that in front of a different audience, it probably would have been received differently. Um, there might have been, you know, Benoit as a member of the Horseman may have got more heat, but uh, Jeff, as you say about Malenko, he's just a guy. He's just there. Um, you know, I almost wonder whether Malenko would be better suited being a heel, and I know he's wrestled someone like Mysterio more recently, but Malenko is more of a heel. He can be, you know, you don't want to overstate what he did in ECW, but that kind of silent shooter gimmick makes a lot of sense for someone like him in that it just kind of says, look, we don't want him to talk because if no one opens his mouth, it'll just blow the gimmick. So it'll just make him a silent character. As he's now, he's kind of this almost silent character, but in a way that tells you they just haven't fleshed it out. Um, the action was fine. Um, Stuart Heenan and Dusty on commentary are so bad at times. Yeah, you just get the feeling that with with Heenan in particular, he's kind of phone, phoning it in. And with Dusty, I mean, there was definitely a point in this match where I, I had no clue what he was talking about. There was some sentence related to the horseman, and I wouldn't have even tried to kind of type it down or write it down in any way because it was just gibberish. And, yeah, like you say, you know, Shivani does his best to kind of bring them back onto point. But, yeah, with two such big personalities, I, I don't necessarily know that he succeeds at that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of talk about Shivani. I don't think Shivani's a great announcer, but I just kind of feel he's hamstrung by having to you know, constantly just keep these two in tow. Um and, and Jeff, like, follow on from that, and also the Heenan stuff, the Vincent Mann impersonations, I, you know, something's gone on, he's had a phone call from somewhere, or he's heard a, a comment from Vincent Mann about his commentary or something, I guess. All feels a bit strange. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Heenan, and I think we've mentioned this in previous uh, editions, he seems to really just be there to amuse himself and cash a paycheck. And if he can, if he can just say something that will pop himself, he will. Um, he he can still bring a really great A game to commentary as the as the color commentator. Uh, I don't know if he's invested enough in the product to do it, and I I, I think matches like this really uh, illuminate that. I I love Dusty, and I think that while as a commentator, I don't think that's the best uh, use for him. I think he can potentially get baby faces over. Fortunately, I don't think there was a babyface in this match to get over. I felt like in the Guerrero uh, Ric Flair match and the even the Rey Mysterio match, uh, Dusty does have a good way of getting behind the babyfaces, which helps. Um, but uh, as we pointed out, you know, Malenko doesn't have a real discernible. Is he, he? He's a tweener with really no facials, and his personality is that he has a bunch of moves, which are really great. But you know, just moves. I, Jeff, in a in a in a sandbox, in a vacuum, is this how, how good a wrestling match is this? Um, I mean, if you took this to wherever Sumo Hall, I think it's I think it's a very good match. Um, I think Benoit's intensity is what puts it over the edge. I think without that, uh, without the time limit draw, if you just if you didn't have the kind of gimmicky finish and the you know, if you just had Benoit the heel, 
getting momentum versus a really great technical babyface, almost like a Jack Briscoe babyface in Malenko, um, I think the match is a lot better. I think this crowd doesn't really uh, isn't really perceptive to that, obviously, as it, as it would a Japanese crowd. Um, I even think a lot of arenas that WCW runs would have appreciated this more. But again, it comes back to as great as Benoit's facials are and his intensity, which just exudes like, like there's a, there was one scene where he goes into the turnbuckle and just rears back and there's a headbutt spot. It looks so legit. And I'm, I'm going like, this guy should be working with Savage. This guy should be working with top guys um, because they, you know, he's got a lot there. And I just, I think it's counterintuitive to have him work somebody who's not a heel so we he can get hot as a, as a, as a heel. You can't get heat on him, but in the same time, he's not really getting over. So I don't know. Altogether, it was a, I, I liked a lot of the match. Um, I felt that the match told a better story than maybe you did, Bob. Um, I thought the superplex spot was pretty brilliant, uh, cause Benoit basically folds himself in half. Um, that I looked dangerous as fuck, that. Uh, you know, it looked really good from a brutality standpoint, but I don't know I want to be doing that that often. Well, I, I think the problem is that without, you know, the, the best type of match has a babyface and a heel, and Malenko doesn't hold up his end. And I don't think I don't think you can really, you know, get a baby fa- shine a babyface if he's not going to be a babyface. And I just I, I just felt like there was kind of a, a clash in personalities that doesn't necessarily translate to a good story. Yeah, in a funny kind of way, you almost don't want these two working with each other in WCW. You kind of, these two are almost too similar. Like, you, you say that Malenko's not a very good babyface in the same. I don't particularly think Benoit's a particularly good heel either, in that neither of them particularly does a lot to emote the character they're playing. And they both wrestle quite a similar style. You know, there's not any huge discernible difference in style between the babyface Malenko and the heel Benoit, but that's kind of where we end up. Stuart, same question, in a in a vacuum, how good is this match? Yeah, I mean, if, if you were to kind of play this match to somebody, put it on mute, but tell them the crowd were really into it, then yeah, you know, you, you could probably convince someone that this was, you know, four, four and a half star kind of match, but again, like you say, you would have to take away the gimmicky finish. Do you think both of you, Benoit and Malenko, would be better served teaming up in WCW if, if kind of you don't feel that Benoit or Malenko particularly emotes either as a babyface or a heel? Do you think they'd be better served almost as a horseman tag team? Jeff, I'll let you take that one. Um, I always think the best part of a tag team is to, you know, hide your your teammate's weakness. And since they're kind of very similar, I I would err on disagreeing with that just because I think. If you have someone like Mongo, who's outlandish and giant, I, I would use the Hart Foundation, you know, as a reference. You know, Brett was the Porsche, Anvil was the tank, and I, I would think that uh, Benoit would probably work best with somebody who's a little better promo, has a little better size and look, and he could do the the heavy lifting uh, in the match. And same for same for Malenko. So if if going forward they were to be in tags, I'd almost want to put them with people who they can. You know, they can do the bumps, they can do the really great wrestling and have the other person maybe put a little more of that shine and that uh, personality and charisma into the match. Yeah, I think they'd be a fine tag team, but I think that would... It wouldn't necessarily reflect well on how WCW perceived them if they were a tag team in the sense that I think they'd both kind of be wasted in that role and it would kind of, to me, be a signal that WCW didn't know what they were doing with them as singles acts, which may very well be the case. Um, but yeah, just to end this bit, I, I think that 
you know, just to to kind of answer the question that I've asked both of you guys is that I feel this match in ECW with an ECW audience with Joey Styles giving it large would have been seen as a, a top five ECW match of the year um, in the sense that the action was excellent. The announcer would have got over the story in the ring and they're probably probably, far be it for me to guarantee it where ECW is concerned, there probably would have been fewer shenanigans. Um, and so as a result, I can see this in, in, in Philadelphia with the kind of crowd that would want to appreciate it. It would have been really good. As it was, it was a pretty good match, but it it kind of never really felt like it got going just because it. You know, I talk about them being in a vacuum. They kind of were. They kind of were in that the audience, the, the, the people in attendance weren't really going with them. And the announcers weren't really playing along with the story they were trying to tell. So as a result, it kind of like was watching a match on mute in the sense that you, you, there was no response from the crowd, nor was there from the audience. So as it was, it kind of fell flat. But I think there's, there's a bit of that on the two guys involved. There's a lot of that on the environment they were surrounded with that was beyond their control. And we move on next to the Steiners, Rick and Scott versus Harlem Heat, Booker T and Stevie Ray versus Sister Sherry and Colonel Robert Parker. Uh, having been pretty docile the entire night and not booing anyone, the crowd seemed to be egging on Harlem Heat. Uh, Jeff, there's no real way of skirting around the subject any longer than we already have. Uh, essentially, two black guys turned up and the crowd got rather interested in booing them. That is pretty much what happened. Yeah, it uh, seemed very unfortunate that the crowd seemed hostile towards them, although I would credit Harlem Heat for, you know, as heels, trying to really stir up the heat to get some sort of reaction, as, you know, the old adage goes, any reaction is a good reaction. Um, So if there was anything, I mean, quote, good to come out of this, uh, I guess it would be that that Harlem Heat at least knew how to react in a pro-wrestling environment, uh, even though it was completely unacceptable and, Totally not what anybody probably uh, was intending. Anybody meaning WCW. Um, but uh, Harlem Heat, at least as heels, had the opportunity to react and egg the crowd on, even though their ignorance as fans was turning the, themselves heels probably to the home viewer. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was an it was an unfortunate, uh, ugly kind of thing when you take a step back and go, well, they haven't really turned on anybody yet. What? Oh, and then you know. It kind of takes the air out of the match from uh, more ways than one. Stuart? Yeah, I mean, Jeff sort of quite eloquently summed it up there, really. It's, if, if you put it in front of really innocent eyes, you would assume that Harlem Heat were the most overheels in the entire company. But, yeah, like you say, when you kind of clock what's going on and why exactly they're so unpopular... I mean, it, it then, you know, just sort of brought to attention in my head that, yeah, any time they showed a shot of the crowd, it, everyone was white. And, yeah, it's just so unfortunate that either they were the only African-American act on the show, so it showed up more blatantly, or it's just unfortunate that that's the way they feel about a particular team purely for that reason. Yeah, I I wonder, I wonder, it's a fun topic to try and speculate on. I, there was Ice Train, there was, well, she's not black, but there was Paul Meccano. I just wonder whether, and we say to, their, to, to Harlem Heat's character a point, whether Harlem Heat probably stirred it up more than anyone else on the show did or would have done. Um, you know, and the fact that I do, and again, we're into dodgy territory here, I do wonder whether we got towards the end of the match, and rather than it still being Heat for the sake of 
racial heat. It was heat with racial undercurrent that had kind of been turned into heat that helped the match. I don't know whether I can say that confidently, but it felt like there was a bit there. It did feel like Harlem Heat responding to it got the crowd involved in a match on a level that they wouldn't have been otherwise, and it did kind of sort of improve the match, but it stuck out like a an absolute mile, and it was a bit ugly. I don't think WCW thought that bit through. It just was a bit unfortunate. But also, you know, to an extent, fair play to Harlem Heat for... I don't want to say going along with it, but fair play to Harlem Heat for taking a really bad situation and to an extent being quite professional about it and probably improving the match that they were in despite what was going on outside because it got a bit ugly at points, but we'll we'll come to it in our review and then we'll, we'll discuss it at the end, but it was probably too big an issue to, uh, to, to not mention up front. Anyway, Booker T gets on the second rope, raises arms in the air, and a large round of brews ring around, and the engines rev up loud. Scott sets up for a double underhook slam. Crowd pop for that. Scott hits Booker with a shoulder charge. Cheers. Scott hits a body drop. More cheers. A ten punch. Loud counting. Ray hits a power slam. Lots of boos. Scott hits a suplex, then tags in Rick. Scott hits a belly-to-belly on Booker, a large cheer, but only a two. Sherry shouts something during a cover. Rick says, shut up, bitch. Sherry responds, I think, by saying, bite me. Booker goes for a leapfrog. Rick catches him into a power slam, which was really nice. Rick Rick then gets thrown hard over the top rope and then into the ring post. Booker T breakdances to his feet, then hits a sidekick. He tags in Ray. T, T stands on the turnbuckle, on the, on the first or second rope, and says, that's all for you. That's for all of you hillbillies. Booker T goes for a move on the second rope. A guy revs up his engine, which grabs his attention right as he's about to do it. Bates belly suplex from Scott. Big pop. Sherry and Parker get on the apron. Parker accidentally throws some powder in Booker T's face. Sherry successfully hits Scott with her powder. Parker hits Scott with a cane, and Booker pins him for the win. Stuart. Yeah, I mean, we just spoke extensively during Benoit Malenko about that match being in a vacuum, and this match might have almost been better served being in a vacuum also, but for the exact opposite reasons of what we spoke about previously. This was a pretty decent tag match. I'm a big fan of the Steiners, and, and I quite enjoy Harlem Heat as well. So they And they put on a pretty decent tag team match, but it was just kind of hard to get over why this match was so over. Jeff? Um, yeah, I, I think as soon as Harlem Heat was announced, there was this kind of incendiary rhetoric from the crowd that was completely uncalled for and unnecessary, especially, I mean, uh, African-Americans in pro wrestling have always had uh, a pretty abhorrent, uh, you know, go of it uh, due to fans and just general uh, discrimination and racism. Uh, and in 1996, I, I think this is, there's no excuse for that, especially uh, 1996 when you have uh, Turner Company having, you know, put on a free uh, live pay-per-view in front of a crowd and to have this reaction is just, it, it makes me just uh, not just feel for Harlem Heat, but kind of disgusted that this crowd is going to react this way in, in a non-kayfabe way. They're not hating these individuals for anything, you know, wrestling related. It just, it just kind of made the the match unfun. Um, as for the match, there were some clever spots for Harlem Heat to cut off the ring, and and you know because there was that uh, non-kayfabe heat, I guess we could call it. Uh, they, they did do the most with their heat, and I felt that that led to a really nice hot tag for Scott. 
Uh, Scott looks massive. He looks like he's just, he looks bigger every time we see him. Um, uh, Steiners are probably my favorite act in WCW. Uh, maybe next to, maybe like the Steiners, Regal, and depending on what Flair's doing. Uh, but I, I almost just think the Steiners at this point need to go heel. Uh, just because they work such a stiff, snug, mean bully style. Um, I think that they're just, they're just so nasty. And especially what Rick had yelled to Sherry, it just, it just kind of epitomized how if they wanted to play the roughneck heels, they could probably do some incredible business, uh, down the line or work, uh, with Hall and Nash. But, uh, you know, another crooked finish, which I think, you know, I don't, I don't know if we have had a clean finish so far on this card. Um, oh, I think Norton beat, uh, Ice Train with an, uh, with, uh, the arm. Mysterio yeah. Dragon was clean. Yeah. There he is. Okay, so I'm sorry, I, I am wrong. It was it's just been the previous two matches, so this would be the third unclean dirty finish. Um Jeff, I, Jeff would have watched Saturday night as well though, and there probably would have been a few on there too, I'm guessing. I, I just think, you know, to again, who are you trying to get over in this match? Uh Harlem Heat gets the win, the double the double salt in the eyes, little hokey, the cane on top. The, it just a little too gimmicky, a little too overbooked, but uh, all guys worked hard. Uh, Booker T's, I think, the, the better of the two from Harlem Heat. I think both Steiner brothers are just awesome, but Scott especially just looks like a superhero right now. Yeah, um, yeah, we we spoke about the the underlie the undercurrent that, that that went on earlier on. Um, I think if you look at the match itself, it was pretty good. And dare I say, the heat, regardless of where it came from, did actually help the perception of the match. And full credit to I think all four guys involved in that they didn't react to it overtly in a way that would encourage it, you know, there was a bit at the start where, you know, both members of the Heat were kind of, you know, shouting at the crowd, but other than that, it wasn't like they were stopping every 30 seconds and you know, going, what the fuck's this? They were just using what the crowd were giving them. They deserve all the credit in the world for, for coming up with a, a competent match in amongst all that all that noise as well. Never mind just what, what the noise is representing. All, all the engines revving, all the boom, there's a lot of noise going on. Um... And the match was pretty good. I mean, all four guys are excellent. Um, the match was good. The finish was a big of a let, a big letdown. Um, but we've grown to expect that when WCW tag teams are concerned. Um, Stuart, I think I'm with Jeff though. I think as good as the Steiners are, uh, them as a heel probably opens up a lot of different possibilities. Yeah, I mean they've had uh, have they, have they been heel as a tag team anywhere? Would would be my question. I think Rick, since they've tagged, uh, you know, yeah, Rick, Rick kind of had the Varsity Club run, but as a tag team, have they been heel anywhere? Jeff, no, nowhere. No, I think uh, Scott did Memphis, and then they just came up, and they've been, you know, your all American tag team uh, with the dog faced gremlin, and then they went to work for Vince and came back, and they just. I'm not saying that they're not great baby faces. I just think. Scott especially and, and Rick with his look, they just have a lot of heel tendencies and there's just a lot of potential there with both of them being really mean. I think like if you look at Gordy and, and Doc, uh, Dr. Dusty Williams, that kind of suplex heavy, just nasty go after it, Haas fighters, um, I think there's a lot to, to be done with them as heels. Who would you, who would you kind of put as a babyface team to oppose them? Because I just think like... WCW have teams like The Outsiders, Harlem Heat, Public Enemy, Nasty Boys that kind of 
I, I don't know if there's a lot of kind of undersized tag teams that they could bully around. Like a lot of the WCW tag teams are kind of of, of, of equal or similar size. Yeah, I think I don't know. I think you're definitely right. I think maybe one of the goals would be to probably a create uh, your white meat babyface tag team, uh, a la like the Rockers or the Rock and Roll Express. However, uh, I mean, I think they're, you're kind of hamstrung with the Outsiders being the predominant heels. I do think down the line, the Outsiders are too cool to just be heels. And if uh, you know, if you want straight mean heels to go up against them. I think the Steiners would be good for that. I also think if you're going to keep Luger and Sting together, um, you know, Luger and Sting and the Steiners have always had really good matches, and there's never been a, a clear heel in those matches, which I think could add another wrinkle. But you're absolutely right. There's a lot of really stiff-looking tag teams across the board on that roster. Yeah. Um, I, I think WCW's tag team is in, uh, tag division is in decent health. Um, I think we talk about who could they face. The answer actually might be staring us in the face. It might actually be a babyface Harlem Heat team. Um, now, you know, double turns on easy and, you know, there's, there's a lot of shifting about that could be done there. I just think, uh, I think there's a, there's a lot of potential fresh matchups, even in a kind of heel versus heel, if you want to do the outsiders against the Steiners, they would pitch that as NWO versus WCW with the Steiners as, you know, these badasses that run outside. Um, Stuart, any more on that? No, I'm all good. Uh, cool. Uh, we will move on. We get a series of uh, clips showing WCW talent riding their Harleys to Sturgis. Uh, I am almost certain that we do see Dom Darth Page and Kimberly Page on the same bike. I think it actually happened twice. Um, so yeah, you know, sort of kayfabe, but not not to uh, not to any great degree. Couple uh, we'll... of quick notes on there, if you don't mind, Bob. Go on. Number one, none of them appeared to be wearing helmets. Uh, um, Jeff, is that just the the bike, I know Jeff, I'm sorry to have you as a North American as someone who might know more about biker it's, culture than me, but is, is that just the style when it comes I think, to... Yeah, I think there's a state-by-state state legislation. I know that for a fact uh, California in, in initiated their helmet laws after, in part, Gary Busey had his horrible accident that caused him uh, severe brain damage in the early 90s. So I, I think... I think state by state is really how they go. I know here in Canada, I'm pretty sure there's a pretty stringent helmet laws. I am not a biker um, because I believe they're referred to as widow makers by insurance companies. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, I believe it's. I believe the helmet laws are a little um, iffy depending on which state you're in. And secondly, we got the reappearance of Pepe. Yes. Yes, but since uh, since Mongo McMichael has been shorn of his duties as a, as a ringside commentator, Pepe has been off of our screens, but it's good to know he's well and good, uh, all, all well and fine. Um, and also, Paul Rondorf appeared, which I haven't seen Paul Rondorf in quite a long time. And anything more, Stuart? That was the, the takeaways I got from that montage. Yeah, I just, I just wanted to bring up Pepe in his outfit and no one wearing helmets. Right, fair enough. Jeff, anything else? Any notes from that montage? Yeah, it was great to see Eric Bischoff letting himself look cool on pay-per-view. <laughs> I mean, that really gets a lot of people over. It moves tickets. It uh, puts asses in the seats. So, good for him. Yeah, yeah. Well, this, felt like, this felt like an Ica Pro or a, a world bodybuilding thing from a Vince. Like, this felt like 
the guy in charge really likes leather and motorcycles, so hey, let's do this. And, well, uh, well, you, well, at least Igerpro's generally only like a 30-second, one-minute advert clip. This was a five-hour pay-per-view and TV show based around one guy's fascination around my t- motorcycles. Well, he looks good with the wind through his hair, Bob. Well, there we go. There's that. There's that. How much money that costs them, we may never know. Uh, we move on to Eddie Guerrero versus Ric Flair with women and Miss Elizabeth for the WCW United States Heavyweight title. They exchange shelves pre-match. Flair says to the woman in the crowd, when this is all over, it's just you and me. More showing after the bell rings. Flair gets off and staggers around. Even the ref shoves him. They exchange slaps. Flair and Guerrero, obviously. The crowd are into this. Flair regroups on the outside. It is starting to go. It is pretty much dusk now. Uh, that's the, that's where the sun is in this stage of the evening. Uh, Flair goes for a belly to back. Guerrero goes for a counter and nearly lands on his head. Guerrero goes for headlocks and runs up the turnbuckle into a headlock on the mat. Flair gets up, slams him down. Guerrero kips up. The lights go down, they come back up, and I don't know what happened there. Uh, Guerrero rallies with a big 10 punch. Flair does his flare flip over the top turnbuckle, and Guerrero drop kicks him onto the platform. The platform being hollow makes the noise that generates real nice. I'll try it again. The noise the platform generated because it was hollow was quite nice. Guerrero does a float over. Flair sits out on it, but Guerrero evades the shot. Guerrero locks in a figure four. Flair escapes. Guerrero hits a lovely swinging DDT from the second rope. Guerrero mocks Flair. Flair goes to the top. Flair throws him off for a surprisingly close near fall. Guerrero goes to the top. Hits a frog splash, but Guerrero hit quite hard there. The saddling that injured his knee on the way down. Flair levels Guerrero with a clothesline, then goes for a figure four. Uh, Flair holds onto woman's hands. Guerrero actually ends up getting pinned while in submission with the viewpoint that he, quote, quote passed out. Stuart. Sure. Yeah, I, I thought this was pretty damn decent. It's We're kind of at the stage with Flair, I think, where a lot of his matches are kind of him just running through almost like a, a greatest hits package, similar to kind of how I said with Medusa and Bull Nakano earlier. But, yeah, I, I thought this was pretty good. It did capture the sort of grey area that Flair's sort of sitting in, and the horsemen in general, really, in that, like you said earlier, Flair was cutting this sort of terrific babyface promo, and we got a, a video package from that, yet kind of... Here he's opposing a quite well-defined babyface, Eddie Guerrero. Yeah, um, it's just you know, it's it's Flair. I mean, I I think he's going to get cheered in most part, whoever you put him against, and to an extent, they're just like, well, we'll just book him as a heel, and if he gets cheered, he gets cheered. Um, you know, I guess more to the point, why not just book him as a babyface and then he gets cheered? Um, yeah. but I think also to an extent, I I guess it's kind of like we need that to happen a bit more organically than just abruptly starting booking him against heels. So I guess that makes sense. And this was a storyline that they've kind of sort of built for a while. I guess there's that. But this isn't the first time this year that Flair, you know, Flair had a match that was Conan last month that felt a bit out of place as well. Isn't the first time that Flair's had a match that feels like quite a good match, even though it doesn't really kind of make sense in the storyline that Flair's in. Um, and this kind of felt like that too. Stuart, any more? Nope, that that's pretty much it. Jeff? Um, yeah, I, I really like this. I was probably looking forward to it most just because, uh, you know, Eddie's such a great in-ring worker and, and Flair, you know, has a, has a great character and really knows what to do with what he has left. Um, Eddie's so fluid in the ring. I, I don't feel like the crowd really cared much about him compared to Flair. Um, as, you know, it's kind of been said, he Flair's 
basically a baby face playing a heel who maybe, you know, shouldn't be or whatever. But at this point, you know, Flair was the most over and recognized guy on the show. Um, I, I really felt that Flair was putting his most into this match to help Eddie get over to that next level. Um, what I saw from this match, and it, it's, you know, kind of going back into a little bit of a, a time machine a bit here, but... You know, Flair had such great matches with, like, the white meat baby face of Ricky Steamboat. And when I look at Eddie Guerrero, I don't think he's as confident as a, as a baby face as he was when he was working with Art Barr in Mexico as a heel. I don't think he has that, that baby face fire yet. And I don't think he has, obviously, someone like Ricky Steamboat's, you know, size right now. Um, but that dynamic certainly would work to uh, Flair's advantage because he knows how to run that match through. He's done that match so many times. And Flair is kind of reciprocating what people like, you know, Johnny Valentine and Wahoo McDaniel prior did for him when he was Eddie's age trying to get over. And I think it kind of showed with Flair's performance that he wasn't as selfish as sometimes he's accused of maybe being uh, or, or maybe not wanting to do things for guys on the way up to keep his position. Um, you know, the, the tan line spot was really fun. Uh, I was okay with this finish because Flair is the dirtiest player in the game. And, you know, I think Eddie being in the ring and, and hanging as long as he could and then having the knee injury out, uh, it all played out really well. I probably enjoyed this match the most out of anyone on the show. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. Jeff, would it, is it fair to say that... Um, Guerrero perhaps is struggling here just because he's not that over yet. Like, face or heel, he's just not getting a great reaction and he's the kind of guy that needs to feed off people. Would that fit your viewpoint of him? I think that, you know, with the perception of guys with size and the guys with kind of outlandish personalities, you know, Eddie has the, has the, runs the risk of kind of just falling in and being a wallflower and kind of fading into the background. Um, I don't really think they've established his character. He seems like just a nice guy with a mustache. Like, he just, <laughs> that's that's kind of all I've really heard from him. Uh, it's kind of similar to Malenko, except Eddie Guerrero's a babyface. Um, you know, he's so smooth. I almost want to see him kind of be less fluid so it looks, you know, so everyone else looks more normal because he's so good in the ring. And, I mean, that Tornado DDT spot he did was just so great. But I don't know if the fans appreciate it if they can't relate to the character. And, 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 you know, going back to the Ricky Steamboat comparison, it wasn't until Steamboat really could find, you know, his perfect foil to bring out his character, and that would be Flair. So I think Eddie needs a, a, a foil to bring out a babyface fire in him because he has the fire. He's shown that in Mexico working with Art Bar. Um, you know, it's just got to be harnessed by the bookers and himself. And he probably needs a bit of a character, I, I, I think, as well. Oh, I guess I don't necessarily contradict what you said. But, yeah, I, I think that's that's probably the biggest takeaway is that he is just a bit of a clean-cut babyface. And, and from what I've seen of Guerrero in ECW and from what I've heard about him prior to ECW, I think he's got the potential to be a lot more than that. Um, but it's kind of about bringing it out. Do you want to come to you on this match? Yes. Yes. Good river. Um, yeah, uh, as you say... Um, that's right. Yeah, I'm not remembering a lot of what you said. Um, it's a very, you know, very standard flair match. But I think, as we said before, he's kind of earned the right to do that. And again, as 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 we discussed on previous years, I think there are times where Flair knows that a crowd is only really going to give him 
a certain level regardless of what he does. And so to an extent he can just phone it in and know he's going to get the same reaction versus if he really put it in. Um, but his work with a guy, Guerrero, that, that, that helped him to, to a good match. It certainly was one of the top couple of matches on the show. Um, but Flair as US champion feels a bit awkward right now. I think Warren says they don't really have any opponents for him. Um, and it feels like it might be, like, Flair almost feels like a guy that's a bit above that level of title. If it was on someone like a Regal, you could almost bring it down a level or two, but have a lot more intrigue on the title. The fact it's on Flair, and they don't really want to put against him, it kind of makes it a bit of an albatross. But anyway, decent match. Finish was what it was. I know we talk about Flair being a babyface with this kind of finish. I think he will be a babyface. I think we've got to get there. What's going through my mind right now is a long history of betrayal. When I was a kid, I was by far the biggest Hulk Hogan fan in the world. And I saw your true colors way before the rest of the world did. When you came out on Nitro and you told the kids and the fans of the world to stick it, you reminded me of the pain you caused me. Well, believe me, Hogan, tonight in Sturgis, I'm going to be the one to stick it. I'm going to stick my hand right around your neck. I'm going to squeeze it till your eyes pop. And I'm going to drive your neck right through the ring. Hogan, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Tonight, I lay the holster to rest. We get a really good promo from the Giant, who says he was the biggest Hulk Hogan fan growing up. Shoot, what do you think of this promo? Uh, And and Giant's promos in general? Yeah, this was pretty decent. I mean, he's still obviously green in terms of mic work and and, and in ring work. But, yeah, he showed babyface fire here which you know mostly Jimmy Hart and kind of secondarily Kevin Sullivan have done a lot of talking for him but I thought this was good Jeff I wasn't blown away by it uh, <laughs> I think the main attraction still is the guy's seven foot and this looks like a giant uh, um, I think there's something kind of generic about the promo and again he is still green so you can't expect him to be cutting these Ric Flair promos Um they actually, it kind of felt like an early Hulkamania one, like before he hit it big in 83, 84. Um, I don't know. I just, between the Giants presentation with, you know, the, the one strap and the still kind of being associated with the Dungeon of Doom and the, the awful ring music, I just, I think there's a, a better way to present him as a babyface than they are doing. Jeff, where does Giant stand in amongst freak show promos in that these big freaky acts over down the years where does giant fit in amongst that because if this was 15 20 years ago he probably wouldn't have talked very much if at all um but i think i bring it up more in the sense that i feel for a guy of his size there aren't that many down the years that would be able to cut promos at this level is that fair or is it more just case of guys down the years that didn't cut promos full stop I think that I would have had him sit down and just watch every Bruiser Brody promo and have that kind of wild man, badass, if you want this guy to be a babyface, because he's so big, so it's going to be hard for him to sell, right? Uh, you know, I think Bruiser Brody is the template for Giant. I think Bruiser Brody is the working template. Uh, I don't think he'll ever be the worker Brody was, but Giant is an athlete. Um, I, I'd, I'd say Brody is the, is the standard bear, and I think Brody might have been 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, um, because everybody works heights in wrestling. 
Um, but as a baby face, I think you have to, I think you have to come across as almost, you know, like you said, like freak show, unpredictable, wild man. I, I would just make him watch Brody. I just, and Brody's my second favorite wrestler of all time, so I might be a bit biased. A little bit, a little bit behind, uh, we, we, we won't ask who's number one, but we can, uh, we can infer that. I'm from Canada, I'm from Canada, yeah. Bob. I think we, I think anyone who's heard you on any WWF show can fill in the gaps on that. Anyway, we move on next to the outside of Scott Hall and Kevin Nash versus Lex Luger and Sting. Luger and Sting get a big bout of pyro on the way out. I say pyro, it's actually just fireworks, really. Uh, the sun is basically set now. Scott wins a game of rock, paper, scissors. He will start off against Luger. Hall drops Luger, then poses. Hammerlock and both sets of teams regroup. Nash tags in. Nash wants a piece of Sting. Nash then manages to spit at Sting from about six feet away, which is pretty impressive. That's enough to get Sting to tag into the match. Sting rallies with some punches. Nash is fading. Sting ducks a clothesline and pokes Nash in the eyes. Nash drops Sting face first onto the top turnbuckle. Sting turns the clothesline from Hall on the apron. Heenan says, I don't care who wins before realising and quickly being told by his co-announcers that there isn't really a way out of that line, having said it. Um, so it just doesn't. Hall catches Sting and hits a lovely fall-away slam. Sting prays the face in peril at the hands of Nash. He rallies. Sting does that thing where he falls off balance and head butts his opponent's bollocks. Sting runs into a big boot from Nash. He singles for Hall. Hall goes to the razor's edge. Sting hits a back body drop. The faces rally. Sting goes for a scorpion on the platform. Luger sets up Hall for a torture rack. Hall inadvertently kicks referee Nick Patrick. Patrick staggers around and then slides in with his shoulder and takes out Luger by the back of the knee. And then Hall goes for a pin. Referee counts it very quickly and the outsiders win. Jeff? Yeah, um, I can already kind of see some of the issues that might confront the NWO-WCW feud. Uh the most visible being that Hall and Nash felt like the cool guys and Sting and Luger looked like the clowns. Um, I know that the, the outsiders are supposed to be heels and these, you know, kind of villains, but their mannerisms are kind of goofing on authority and just kind of being a lot cooler and it, it's, it's you know, wavering on that tweener area. So when you look at that and you look at Sting and Luger just being the, you know, kind of bland good guys... It just, it, it makes the actual, it makes your baby faces look kind of lame and uncool, and I don't think you ever want to run that risk. I also don't think they made the stakes this match really feel uh, important coming off that bash and that turn. Uh, bash of the Beach, sorry. Uh, and it, it felt like they didn't pay anything off. And of course, if they want to run down the line, because obviously this is a new act, um, but it just felt like if you're going in there to get retribution for what happened at, at Bash of the Beach, you know, it didn't. It didn't really pay off. It didn't really feel like there was consequence. Commentary was poor. Uh, you know, I, I feel like I don't know. I just I think you almost don't want to dilute and contrive the outsiders this early in. And I almost would have just done a schmoz and and not had much of a match at all. I would have almost done one of those nasty boy brawls where everybody just gets their shots in, and then the outsiders fight dirty, and then you get a table spot. And you don't have this traditional match because, again, they're outsiders. So why are they just all of a sudden waiting for the hot tag and trying to play by the rules? And that finish, I thought, was executed uh, awfully. I don't know if it was a combination of the ref or the, the guys were in a position, but that was like a telegraphed Ric Flair like leg clip. That was just brutal. Um, crowd was hot, uh, hot for the hot tag, at least. That was about it for the match. 
Um, Scott Hall has a hell of a working punch, also. Sure. Man, that finish. Like, in... On paper, I see what they were trying to do, and it would make sense, but just in execution, it, it was awful. Like... Nick Patrick had to wander around pretending to be blinded, trying to find Lex Luger's leg. And then, and then the fast count, I mean, I presume they'll, they'll do some sort of crooked referee angle as a result of this because the fast count, it, that doesn't explain the fast count, the sort of wandering around looking for the leg. But yeah, I, I kind of would, would agree with Jeff in the sense that this kind of made the outsiders feel like regular guys in, in the sense that, yeah, they're just on the apron waiting for the hot tag in a regular match. And, yeah, a, a brawl probably would have been better. And uh, I think Sting and, and Luger would have, would have done, done well in that environment too. Brawl might have helped the crowd too. Uh, I know Jess kind of mentioned that at times there in the show as well. Um, but, yeah, it, the problem with this match and the problem with the main event was that the... The setting and the audience and the crowd and the commentary weren't really befitting what should have been on this match. And the truth was, there wasn't really a lot on this match anyway. It wasn't quite like the main event. There were a lot more stakes on the main event. This just felt like a tag match that just needed to happen, even though it perhaps didn't. Um, but yeah, like, it was, we remarked about the match last month, the main event, where it was like, it wasn't a great match, but there was so much riding on it, it didn't really matter. It felt like this one was just the not great match without anything riding on it. And that's where it struggled. Um, Jeff, I also, it doesn't feel like any of these guys really mesh that well. I don't know whether maybe, maybe Hall and Sting could get a good match out of each other, but none of these combinations really feel like there's going to be great, great action, although maybe we just haven't had a chance to see it yet. Yeah, I think part of it is probably guys not wanting to look soft and weak and, and everybody kind of politically trying to protect themselves and not give too much. Um, I think you're kind of limited with Nash. I, I think you're right. Hall and, Hall and Sting should probably have a good match. Hall and Luger could probably have a good match. But I think politically, there's there's guys probably trying to gamble on holding on to their spot with these two new main eventers coming in. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I just think I think the outsiders are going to protect themselves and take care of themselves, and uh, you know that could be to the detriment of the baby faces because they're mainly trying to get themselves over and they're they're cool. And I don't necessarily think that heels. Should aim to do that, but uh, you know they're going to get over. Yeah, is what it was. Is what it is. You know. Um, it, yeah, I, I think this match almost kind of felt too soon. I know to an extent they kind of felt like we need to do a big match following it up. Um, but in hindsight, it's like this wasn't the show to do this kind of match on. In the sense, especially that with Fall Brawl coming up. Yeah, that too. That too as well. Um, this this was kind of a match that could have saved, and yeah, I mean, maybe it was. I don't know. Maybe if you do the Outsiders against the Nasty Boys or someone like that, made the matches worse, I suppose as well. But just a decisive, clean victory because it wasn't even a an interesting screwed off finish. It was a very kind of you know let the air out of the balloon kind of finish, and it just didn't translate, which I thought was a bit of an issue. Anyway. We're on to the main event. Michael Buffer is on hand. The Harleys rev up, which makes for quite the noise. It's the main event of Hollywood Hulk Hogan versus the Giant with Jimmy Hart for the WCW World Heavyweight title. 
Hogan doesn't even want to engage. His ring gear is black trousers with lightning bolts down the side. The bell rings and Hogan walks off. He returns to the ring but looks apprehensive. Drake mixes, misses an axe handle. Hogan takes a few free uh, shots and then scarpers. Hogan gets into it with the crowd but they're not exactly anti-Hogan. Every time Hogan makes a movie then retreats to the platform. This match isn't going anywhere fast. We get a test of strength. The crowd up massively pro-Hogan at this point, which doesn't really help anyone at all, other than Hogan's ego. Hogan's winning a test of strength with Giant rallies, eventually. Another long submission hold. Hogan locks in an arm lock on Giant, which takes him to the mat. Giant goes for some headbutts. It spills to the, spills to the platform. Hogan goes for the back rakes. He's basically wrestling his babyface style from WCW. Giant hits a backbreaker, but Hogan gets his foot on the ropes. He goes for an elbow drop, but Hogan moves. Hogan goes for some kicks. Giant hulks up. Yes, you did hear that correctly. Giant points at Hogan, then no sells his offense. He hits a big boot and then signals for the chokeslam. Here comes Hall and Nash. Hall takes a pair of chokeslams from Giant. Giant stops Nash hitting him with the megaphone. With the ref turning to Hall, Hogan hits Giant with the title belt and the ref counts the pin for the three. We come to the perfect angle in a minute. Stuart. It was the right result in the sense that Hogan can't turn heel one month earlier and then not lose this bout. But yeah, do you think it kind of cuts the legs out from the giant a little in that, you know, he's held this title since, what, February? And as soon as Hogan makes this turn, he he wins the title? Would it would have been end of April if I'm going to be picking. Okay, April. But, yeah, your argument still stands. Yeah, and, and, and the match itself just, just wasn't up to much. I mean, Hogan's stalling was off the charts in this one. I mean, I get that kind of refusing to face the baby face is a heel tactic, but it, it probably constituted, what, seven minutes of a 14-minute match kind of thing? Yeah, I'd agree with that. It, it was... It's not necessarily to say the story was wrong. It comes back to what we said 20 times on this show already. It wasn't really the right crowd to receive... Um, be on the receiving end of it um, and Jeff it just didn't really make for very good action which on you know when we're into deep into hour five wasn't ideal yeah no I mean my first three notes on this match are so much stalling even more stalling they're still stalling while there's too much stalling in this match um, you know both of these guys need smoke and mirrors uh, Giants too green and Hogan's Hogan. Uh, there were neither smoke nor mirrors in this match, and it showed. Um, I really disliked this match. I thought it was a, a quite a quite a bad match. Uh, Hogan, as a heel, he can get the kind of heel mannerisms and kind of do the 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 you know, the bag offs and kind of delay things. Except he's not really going to feed for a good comeback, or at least he didn't in this match. And you know, Giant was it just. I, I also think it kind of took some of the, the win from Giant Sales. I understand that you want Hogan with the title as the heel, but, you know, he took a belt shot and just laid there forever. Um, I was really oh, yes. curious, I was really curious where all those WCW fighters or warriors for this battle were during these three outsiders just beating down their champion. Or like, the just, Dungeon of Doom, where were they? Yeah, like, I just, I just keep looking at, and and that was kind of my issue with the whole representation of the outsiders in the previous matches. Like, they're supposed to be these rule breakers, and then they're going to abide by a tag. And now they're going to come down, and they're going to, you know, they're going to use Rey Mysterio as a lawn dart on Monday, and now they're just going to come down and interfere, and no one's going to take umbrage with that. And I think it just, 
it's it's not as well handled and as manicured as they really should do this angle because it's a very it's a very uh, valuable and potentially money making uh, endeavor for WCW. Yeah, I I would go along with that in the sense that it's almost like this very erratic booking, isn't it? Like, yeah, one one day they're invading arenas and refusing to listen to security and officials, and then, yeah, we're supposed to believe that they will just come down and stand on the apron and wait for a tag on Sunday. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's almost as if very early on this kind of NWO thing is proving to be difficult booking-wise. If you truly want to present them as outsiders and as rule-breakers... Yeah, can you have them at this stage in kind of regular matches? Yeah, they're almost so far out there you can't present them in the ordinary contracts of a wrestling match, um, which I guess could be another problem as well. Um, Stuart, uh, you did allude to it, but we'll address the topic a bit more full on. Um, the Giant loses his title. Uh, again, it kind of comes back what what I said about the semi-main event in the... It was kind of the match they had to do, but it was a really awkward match. And this is the kind of match that I think you wanted to build up to to for, for four or five months. I don't know what you would have done here in its place. I'll, I'll put my hands up and say that. But it kind of feels like they probably did need to get the whole title onto Hogan, and the angle was quite effective. But it kind of... It, the Giants should be a bit stronger than this, even though they protected him. Yeah, I, I think the only problem there is I don't know what you would do with Hulk Hogan, freshly turned heel, for four to five months if he's not challenging for the title. I, I mean, I don't know if you would run with kind of almost angles rather than matches like six-man brawl type situations. And again, that might help that kind of notion that we're going with that they should be more presented as outsiders. But yeah, it does make sense and it does feel like the right result to to have him back as the world champion. But yeah, I, I, I would say it does cut the legs out from the giant in that for all intents and purposes, it makes him look like he was merely cle- keeping the title warm for Hogan. And he may well have been doing that as a heel had Hogan not turned heel. But yeah, it, this makes it kind of more apparent. Jeff? Yeah, I, I think, you know, appropriate management and and handling of the outsiders and the Hogan angle. I, I agree. I think it I think it should be more protected and, and you would have more I, I think the the Freebirds and Von Erichs dynamic is, you know, probably the most appropriate comparison in which you want to stoke the flames between the these two groups and then you wait, you target your big show and that's when your payoff is. And one month in you've got the outsiders fighting the two guys they fought in the in the the the, the six man um, or the the you know with Savage when Hogan was the surprise at, at the Bash Beach and then you have Hogan already challenging for the title it feels a little too soon and it kind of makes these guys who are special feel less special I think if you made Hogan I I don't have an issue with him getting like if the end game is him getting the title because as a heel champ I think there's a lot of places to go I just I think it's a little more I think I think you know Stuart's right with more angles, more you know, more six fans where a lot of a lot of the outsiders and Hogan is protected and it's it's a little more different. I think they're special and they should be presented as that. Um, and they haven't been, or in this at least tonight they haven't been. They just it felt a lot more par for the course for WCW. Yeah, you almost want 
those guys facing other opponents and the baby faces facing other opponents, it's almost too soon for both of the matches. But I don't know what they would have done. Um, yeah, I, I also think to an extent, one, this show probably came too soon. I mean, this is, this is a month where they added in a pay-per-view where there wasn't one last year, as we referenced earlier. The pay-per-view last year was Collision in Korea, also it was taped in April, shown in August. That was in the pay-per-view slot, which obviously from a WCW story perspective didn't really exist. So they went from the pay-per-view bash in July to full brawl in September with only a clash in the middle. If you hadn't have had this pay-per-view, you could have done anything you liked at the clash. You could have done Hogan Flair. It would have been a, an interesting matchup first up, maybe something like that. And then gone into the four-on-four, all the while while Giant is still champion. And then you can get to Hogan and Giant maybe October, maybe even December, and you could also get to that kind of tag match down the line too. Putting this show in the middle, and, you know, this was planned quite a long way in advance, who knows, it just, it's a bit awkward, and I'm a big fan of what the Giants done. I think for for all of his limitations, I think he's got a lot out of his, his relative skill set. But I kind of felt like, and I still do to an extent, that we were on the way to this mega babyface giant and this felt like an odd first chapter but I don't know anyway oh yo yo the NWO is the way to go giant yo outsiders the booty man knows it's Hulk Hogan's birthday brother yeah. And you know what? Now I'm going to wish a happy birthday to me, brother. Yo, booty man. What a surprise. Hey, also, I just want to say, first of all, congratulations on being the new NWO he is World Heavyweight Champion. He is the WCW Heavyweight Champion. Very simply put, that is a falsehood right there. In just a second... It's my pleasure to wish you, brother, a happy birthday in front of all these people at Circuit. Well, where's the members of the Dungeon Doom when you need them? Yeah. And last but not least, I just want to put my hand out and thank you for being there for me for 22 years, man. Congratulations, champ. Well, we have a real champ. You booty, man. I love you, man. Like you're my own blood. You know something, man? For 20 years, brother, you and I have been hanging together. And to have you here with an NWO shirt on is something special. But you know something, brothers? Now that I'm a champion in Denver, Colorado, Ric Flair is going to get the beating of his life. But you know something? There's something we all got to learn here, man. The reason the NWO is so powerful, the reason we're going to make Ted Turner look like a second-class citizen, we're going to wipe out the WCW, is that we never mix business with friendship or pleasure. And you know something, Ric Flair? We attacked the WCW for a reason, not because Arn Anderson was there. And so you showed your down card, brother. You got a soft spot, dude. For Art Anderson. Well, this is my best friend here. And the one thing 
He's been driving me crazy about his NWO, man. And now that we've got the mission accomplished, we want to tell you one thing, brother. They do not have We a never, ever mix business with friendship, but this is a special occasion, man. And we got a surprise for you. You know what, brother? We got a surprise. Hold on. What in the world is going on? Get him, boys. Let's get him. Can you believe this? Unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. That's the true color right there. This is what the NWO is all about. Backstabbing, lying. Hold him up, brother. Hold him up. Making examples of people. people. 20 years, he said he's been a best friend. Let me tell you something, Ric Flair. That is business, brother. And that was my best friend. If I'll do that to my best friend, what am I going to do to you in Denver, Colorado? The NWR rules, brother. To the post-match angle. Two guys come out carrying a birthday cake for Hogan. Behind them is the Booty Man in an NWO shirt. Booty Man congratulates Hogan on being the NWO World Heavyweight Champion. Hogan hugs and kisses Booty Man. Hogan says the reason the NWO is so powerful is because they don't mix business with pleasure. They've got a surprise for Booty Man. Nash holds him up and Hogan and Hall take shots at him. If I'll do that to my best friend, what am I going to do to you, Flair? in Denver, Colorado, opposite the clash. Hogan takes out a spray can and sprays NWO onto the belt as we go off the air. Stuart, what do you think of all of this, this post-match angle? Do you know what? It, it kind of made sense from the perspective that I think it's fairly well known and it, on a television presentation as well, like Hogan and Beefcake, Barber, Butcher, Zodiac, Booty Man, whatever you want to call him, of, uh, you know more often than not been presented as on-screen allies. Yes, you had the kind of brief term between 94 and 95, but 90% of the time they've been allies, they've been friends. So I guess trying to present that the booty man was trying to join the NWO, but that they didn't want him there for that very reason. I I thought it was kind of effective. Jeff? Yeah, I really liked it. Um, It really established uh, Hogan as a heel because obviously, I mean, I've been waiting for Hogan to beat the crap out of Beefcake since SummerSlam 1989, personally. Uh, I, I don't think there's much redemptive... Uh, I, I think a lot of those matches were there because Hogan was friends with him, uh, obviously. Uh, I will say that you know it really does connect to the Flair feud because Flair got all choked up because Arn was beaten up and Hogan would you know stab his best friend in the back and leading towards that showdown at the clash uh, i think it's a really good build up um i think it gets hogan over as a heel i, I mean again the one the one kind of hang up is it's not like beefcake was i'm just going to call him beefcake cuz booty man zodiac you know butcher it's, he's bruce the barber right uh i don't think he's prominent enough in the company to to a point where it actually has a substantive uh impact on, you know, like, it would it would have felt a little hotter if there was a bigger star he could have turned on, but of course that would have made a bigger star have to ask to be in the NWO. Um, you know, I think it I think it adds to the Flair feud. I It makes Flair a lot more of a likable character because he'll stand up for his friend where Hogan won't. Um, I would, again, caution that when Hogan is in the ring with the Outsiders, he siphons their cool factor down quite a bit, and he just comes across as a guy, like a dad trying to 
relationship. Exactly what I was going to say. It comes across like their dad, like a dad trying to like a dad trying to relate to his teenage kids and trying to say like with your rap music and your you know like just <laughs> trying too hard when really a heel Hogan should try to almost be like a Nick Bockwink or well or a you know a superstar Graham. Just try to be a, a heel. I don't think he. Tr- I think by trying to be cool, he becomes less cool. And by you know osmosis, Hall and Nash, who are really cool, don't seem cool. So that's your lesson in cool for today. Do yeah. you think Hogan's turn to, to to being a heel is ultimately in his mind designed to turn him back babyface and make him more relevant again? Do you think that's why he's trying to leech off this kind of cool factor of National Hall, Jeff? Um, yeah, yeah. I think politically, Hogan is one of the most astute movers and shakers in wrestling. And uh, when he sees a hot angle and a way to defer kind of the attention of him not being over as a babyface, he always had turning heel in his back pocket. I think he used it at the appropriate time. He is now leeching onto a hot act, and it's making him as fresh as he's been probably since what eighty nine, maybe. 90, uh, you know, he, his, his run in WCW has been very contentious with the fans because he, they are kind of shoving down that New York WWF style and, you know, Flair was getting a lot of cheers. Now he's a heel and yeah, no, I, I absolutely think he's doing that. I think it would be in the outsider's best interest to eventually try to get away from him as soon as possible. And I think as baby faces, the NWO or the, the 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 outsiders are the guys that you want to sell the T-shirts and to have the teenagers say those are the cool guys. I don't think Hogan will ever be able to achieve that again, and that will that will take away from the value of these two uh, free agents that they've just signed. Jeff, thoughts on spray painting the title and the NWO World Heavyweight Championship? I mean, it's clear it's clear what Flair said at the beginning of the show. Um, they are trying to present this as a basically a different group. I don't know where this ends up, but it's it's different. I, I I'm intrigued more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I guess going back to when Shane Douglas did the deal with the NWA title, like there's something you know disrespectful to the authority and to the lineage of a title, and you know by Hogan doing this, he's further ensconcing himself and healed him. Uh, yeah, I mean, the spray paint, again, it's like there's this 40-year-old guy spray painting a belt. It just feels like he's doing faux graffiti to try to fit in. It just, I, I don't know. I think, I think the heat in the, in the NWO is not Hulk Hogan. And I think whatever he's doing kind of is secondary to the, to the cool guys. Um, and where they go from here, I mean, I think the absence of Savage really hurts this feud because Flair, while he is the kind of, you know, counterpart to Hogan in many ways as the biggest wrestler on the planet for the last 15 years, Savage is probably the most notable wild man to go after Hogan. And, you know, I, I think that, I don't know, I just, I think Hogan on his own is just kind of lame still. As a, I mean, he's going to get more cheers because he's with cool heels, but... You know, spray painting a belt and hitting a giant over the head with it and then having the poor guy have to lay there for like 15 minutes while he plays with a birthday cake seems, again, counterproductive. Stuart? Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. The the laying there dead for the giant certainly didn't help him either. As far as the spray painting of the belt goes, yeah, I, I'm, I'm fine with it. I get Jeff's point about 
Hogan kind of feeling like a dad trying to fit in with the kids, but from a sort of perspective of presenting the NWO as, like you say, disrespectful, you know, rebellious, renegade, outsiders, all those sorts of terms, then yeah, spray painting the belt, given everything else they've done, makes complete sense. Yeah, um, no, I, I thought that was, of, of the post-show stuff, I thought that was the strongest line. Uh, the only other thing to make note, well, as we finish the show, uh, would just be the absence of Randy Savage, which I thought was interesting. Um, essentially, the the thought was uh, was that Savage, uh, I think essentially the thought was if Savage was there, he'd just have to run out and beat the piss out of Hogan, and they had no way out of that, so they just decided not to do it. Uh, and the other thing to make note of, we would have made note of it in the news, uh, would also have been uh, Sean Walkman. Uh, who they, I think they wanted to have as the fourth guy debuting on this show, but WWF haven't granted him his release yet. Um, so that will remain uh, up in the air. Uh, but that will bring to a conclusion uh, our review of this show. Stuart, your overall thoughts on the show and a score rating out of 10. I'm going to go with a five in that there was some pretty decent stuff on the show. There were, there were matches that were worth watching, but it kind of depends on how you take or how important you deem crowd reaction to be. So, yes, Mysterio, Ultimo Dragon and Benoit Malenko, I thought both were, were re- really good matches, but perhaps didn't get the crowd reaction they would have gotten in front of a more appreciative crowd. And then, contrary to that, you've got Steiner's Harlem Heat, which, again, I thought was pretty good, but got a reaction it shouldn't have but as you edged further and further kind of towards the main events the matches got worse and the finishes got silly and then you got a main event full of stalling yeah Jeff yeah I I really hated this uh, pay-per-view as a matter of fact Um, I felt the crowd was spoiled by having the cruiserweights and Malenko and Benoit and Flair and Guerrero uh, and there, I don't think that the good wrestling was appreciated. I don't understand how any money was made off of this uh, by giving it free to a live crowd. Um, it felt like a vanity project for a bunch of wannabe bikers, to be honest. I thought the main event and the culminate event exposed the NWO in a way you didn't need to right away. I think it dilutes them and makes them feel less special. They're a special attraction. They're new. And I think that they very easily could have gotten around you know, I, I get Hogan having the title. They very easily could have had Savage run in and do something to the Outsiders and get away from that. I don't think you need matches right away. Um, I think that that's that's they're 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 pulling the trigger too soon with them. But that takes the points away. I thought the crowd being completely divested in the matches was a detriment, uh, which made all the matches less uh, hot. Uh, the the issue with the Harlem Heat and the you know, kind of blatant racism that we experienced, or that they experienced, but that we we witnessed, I thought was uh, deplorable. And overall, I'd say maybe, uh, you know, one and a half out of ten. This can't have been worse than Slamboree, can it? I I think that Slamboree at least got guys on the card. I think and, you're overdoing the whole payday thing with Slamboree, but we. Well, no, but I think I think that at least people paid to see them, and guys got on the card and got their paychecks. Here, no one paid to come to see this. So where are uh, you making money? And if that's the if that's the kind of essence of pro wrestling is to draw money, this card completely failed. Uh we didn't attempt to draw money, yeah. did we? Uh, who knows? Who knows? Anyway, whatever. I gave this show a four. Um, there's enough noteworthy on the show. 
where the fact that it isn't always very good, uh, you know, kind of patches over that. The stuff with Harlem Heat is, is, is pretty abhorrent, but it's there and it probably made the match a bit more interesting as a result. I don't know if I want to say that, but it probably did. It made it more noteworthy, certainly, and I think both, both teams did really well off of that. But ultimately, you've got to look at this show and go, this was the first big pay-per-view after their huge angle. And they missed by quite a long way in that regard, in that it didn't have the drama. It, the two big matches in the main event didn't feel like big matches. And this felt like a real albatross of a pay-per-view in that it would have been far better off if this show just hadn't have been here. In that there wasn't particularly a way around booking what they'd have done other than just not having Hogan on the card. And maybe have done Giant and Sting against the outsiders of the main event. Maybe that would have worked. I don't know. Um, but the problem is, is that they kind of had this real limp kind of show three or four weeks after, four or five weeks after their big angle. And they kind of went, ah, we're not really far enough along this story. And there are certain things that aren't really working in their favour yet. And that the NWO still haven't been properly defined. Neither has Hollywood Hogan. And they've undercut the giant. Four out of ten. Okay show. Perhaps more noteworthy for it being outside than it would have been otherwise. Perhaps dragged down by that too. Uh, anyway, that will end this part of the show. Basically, WCW, uh, as you... As you would have noticed, we've got about three nitros to go and a clash. Um, so I decided we're just going to chop this show into two. Uh, so this was part, this was volume two, part one. Uh, and then volume two, part two is going to be me and Jeff running through, uh, the clash, some notes from TV and the other news from the month. That- yeah, anything that, that kind of comes to mind. Uh, but at this stage, a big thank you to Stuart Brooks. who will be signing off at this point. Thank you very much, Stuart. Here's Bob. Uh, Stuart, uh, tell people about your podcast, not that it needs a lot of introduction, and where people can find it. So, all the normal places you can find podcasts, really, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, all, all, all that good stuff, facebook.com slash newgenerationprojectpodcast, and twitter.com slash newgenpodcast. I did say not that it needs an introduction, but you can give it 30 seconds if you would like. <laughs> we review WWF and sometimes WCW pay-per-views between 93 and 98. We're about a year ahead of you guys. We're just uh, about to do SummerSlam 1997, which is quite an interesting show. Looking forward to recording that this this weekend. And uh, Jeff Parker, Jeff, also you'll, you'll be with me on the other side. But thank you very much, Jeff. Hi, oh, welcome. Um, I say, Jeff, you can be found on Twitter, but based on your social media activity recently, you seem to be trying to be not be found on Twitter. So if you so wish, promote your Twitter account. If not, I will hastily move on. Hastily move on, please. Okay, no problem at all. Uh, all right, <laughs> yes, this will conclude Volume 2, Part 1 of this month's show. Uh, hop straight over the other side to Volume 2, Part 2. We'll continue our run through WCW in August of 1996. Volume 1 is your... Uh, WWF action looking at SummerSlam I'm not on that show another show I'm not on it's been a weird month this month uh, is volume 3 uh, the two Chris's will take you through all of the ECW action for the month anyway uh, yeah very very briefly uh, you can find me on Twitter at Bobby Bambi you can find the account on Twitter at Wrestling20RS Wrestling20RS.com it's all on there that's where all the information you is uh, you need is there anyway uh yeah so hop on over to the next part of the show and until next time i've been bob bamba this has been volume two part one of the august 1996 edition of the wrestling 20 years ago podcast and until next time goodbye